Dear brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's holy word, as we continue our foundations of faith study uh, with the Apostles' Creed guiding our study today, we consider the burial of Jesus and the, important, uh, the importance of that event in redemptive history, and we consider uh, the Apostle John's record of our Lord's burial, found in John chapter 19, verses 38 to 42, which is my sermon text for today. John chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. You'll find that on page 1077 in your pew Bible. Let us hear God's holy word. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Dear friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Almighty God, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to see the importance, the significance, and the relevance of this portion of your God-breathed, inerrant, infallible word. We ask, Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts to behold wondrous things from your law. And we pray that by your spirit you would set a guard over my lips that I might speak only that which is faithful to your word. We ask these things, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Dear ones, you may be seated. I'd encourage the children to listen for our the key words of my sermon today, those are listed as the following, death, grave, fear, king, faith, hope, and salvation. Well, dear listeners, let me ask you a question, and don't answer out loud, of course, but let me ask you a question. Are you afraid of death? Do you dread the grave? Would you view the Grim Reaper as an unwelcome guest? Well, friends, for those of us who are blessed with reasonably good health and who have reasonably good prospects of longevity, of living a a normal uh, lifespan, it might be easy to boldly declare, well, no, I'm not really afraid of death. I don't spend too much time worrying or thinking about death. And in our younger years, we tend to feel like death is a long ways off. There is uh, the phenomenon of the sense of immortality among our youth. Reminds me of a line in one of Russia's songs which says, we're only immortal for a limited time. But friend, if you have ever had a close call or a close brush with death, you know that the prospect of death and the grave ordinarily terrify 
the human spirit. And even in the case of those of us who shouldn't be afraid of death or of dying or of the grave, even in the case of those of us who know Jesus as our Savior and who therefore have the assurance that we have received the gift of eternal life, if we're being honest with ourselves, we'll have to admit that, yes, death and the grave can still be frightening prospects to face. While the annals of church history record many examples of faithful and godly and courageous uh, believers, Christian martyrs who chose to face the fangs of the lion or the flames of the stake rather than to renounce their Savior in order for their lives to be spared, while the history records many such brave souls, The truth is, sadly, not every Christian stood strong and faithful and courageously for their Lord when faced with the threat of torture or death, when faced with the choice either renounce your Lord or offer that pinch of incense to Caesar or be killed, perhaps in a violent and painful way, not all stood strong. Some stood firm to the end, and we praise God for that. Many others caved and compromised in order to avoid the threat of death. We all have a a strong drive for survival and a strong drive to avoid death at any cost. Dear ones, the truth is that we fear death because death is a fearful thing. You know, there's a popular view out there in the secular world that says that, hey, death is just a natural part of life. I remember many years ago attending, I believe I was a funeral service, and uh, there was a particular unbelieving individual uh, that I was having a conversation with after this service uh, who made this comment, who said, you know, this is sad, you know, death is always a hard thing, but we just have to learn to accept that death is a natural part of life, she said. But beloved, from a biblical point of view, that is just not true. Death is not a natural part of life. Instead, God's word describes death as an enemy, as the greatest enemy. Death is presented in scripture as a foe, an intruder, even a curse. The undying, eternal God did not create us in his image in order that we might die. Instead, as we learn in well-known passages such as Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. The reason that we human beings die is because of sin. Death is punishment for sin. As the Lord tells us through the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, the soul who sins shall die. Physical death and the grave are signs of God's wrath and curse upon a sinful, rebellious humanity. It is not a natural part of life. I remember the first, uh, the first funeral I remember attending as a young person It was an open casket funeral. I think I've shared this story before. There was a a dear older couple that lived across the street from us, a wonderful family. They invited uh, my brother and me anytime we wanted to go over and and swim in their swimming pool during the summer months. But we got the word one evening, I believe it was fall or uh, close to the winter, maybe October or November, 
and got the word that they were suddenly killed in a tragic car accident, snuffed out unexpectedly, tragically. And I remember attending their funeral service, and it was a creepy experience. It was an open casket funeral. And though the morticians had done their best to make this couple look as natural as possible, to look like they were just taking a nap, in my heart of hearts, I felt and I knew, this is not right. This is creepy. This is not natural. Friends, it is precisely because the prospect of death and the grave are such naturally terrifying prospects for us sinners that our Lord's burial in Joseph of Arimathea's new tomb can be such a comforting truth. Have you ever before thought of or considered the burial of Jesus as a truth that should bring gospel comfort? Well, I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, this morning that not only does the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus give us gospel comfort, but even the burial of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ offers us gospel comfort, and I hope to make that clear in my sermon today. Isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit inspired all four gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to record this historical event of our Lord's burial by Joseph of Arimathea. And the details in the various gospel accounts are, are, differ slightly with one another. They're not contradictory to one another, but they, you know, in order to get the full picture of the events surrounding our Lord's burial, you, it's good to uh, compare all of the gospel accounts. And it's interesting that John's gospel is the only one that records Nicodemus as assisting Joseph in the burial of our Lord. Friends, this repetition and multiple attestation of the burial of Jesus emphasizes, emphasizes the vital importance of our Lord's burial as a central part of the good news about Jesus, which is why the historic church has always confessed in the creed that our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. You see, friends, Jesus not only died on the cross for our sins, praise God he did that, Jesus not only rose from the dead to win for us the gift of eternal life, he was also placed in the grave for us so that we who trust in him as Savior can be assured that the grave is not our final destination. There is hope beyond the grave. The grave does not have the final say. Though Jesus our Lord was indeed buried, though he was laid in the tomb, the grave did not have the final power over him. Indeed, he conquered the grave. And likewise, because we who are believers are united to Jesus Christ by faith, the grave will not have the final say for us either. And this is where we get our gospel truth, our gospel comfort from this truth of our Lord's burial. As the late Dr. William Hendrickson wrote of our Lord's burial in his commentary on John, he writes, the burial of Jesus was a necessary element in his humiliation. By means of it, he sanctified the grave for all his followers. So friends, let's now turn our attention to some of the truths that we can learn from St. John's inspired record of our Lord's burial. And the first thing I would have us to consider is, 
What would have happened to Jesus' body if his friends did not intervene to get the body from Pilate? Well, we have here a burial fit for a king. This is the first point uh, in your sermon outline. Brothers and sisters, behold a burial fit for a king. Dr. Merrill C. Tenney points out that burial in the Middle East usually takes place within 24 hours after death. In this case, the body of Jesus would probably have been flung into a common pit with the bodies of the two other victims had not his friends intervened. So praise God that that he moved in the hearts of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to intervene and to uh, prepare Jesus' body for a proper burial. But it wasn't just a proper burial. It was a burial fit for a king. Let's look at verses 38 and 39. It says, after these things, the things that John had recorded previously, the things having to do with our Lord's death and, and on the cross, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph is introduced by John here, and who is Joseph? Well, John tells us who he is. He was a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Asks Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. We'll consider the boldness and courage that Pilate required to go before, excuse me, that Joseph required to go before Pilate to request the body of Jesus in a little bit. But, but notice who he was, a secret disciple who finally comes out in the open and he asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. And Pilate, after He checks and makes sure that Jesus is uh, truly dead, as I believe Matthew's gospel points out. Pilate granted uh, Joseph the body of Jesus. And then it goes on to say in verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 75 pounds by our measurement of pounds. Now, Both Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, as aristocratic members of the Jewish ruling council, these were men of means and wealth. And in God's sovereign providence, they are the ones who plan for and arrange our Lord's burial. Now, if you're following along in a different translation, such as the New American Standard Version and not the ESV, you might might have noticed in verse Uh, 39, that it says that this mixture of myrrh and aloes was 100 pounds in weight, whereas the English Standard Version says it is 75 pounds in weight. Is there a contradiction there? Is there tension there in the text? Well, the answer to that question is no. Instead, versions like the ESV are giving the weight in standard English pounds, whereas versions like the New American Standard Version are giving the weight in Roman pounds. In fact, in the Greek, it literally reads 100 litras, a litra being a Roman pound. But 100 litras, 100 Roman pounds, amounts to about 75 of our pounds. So uh, that's the reason for uh, the slight difference in some of your uh, Bible translations. In any case, I wanted to point that out in case any of you were wondering about that. But notice uh, regarding this mixture, 75 pounds of spices and aloes. Wow, that's a lot. 
bringing, what does Nicodemus do? He brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Dr. Tenney points out that the mixture of spices that Nicodemus provided was a very large quantity. Spices were generally imported and were very expensive. Myrrh is a gum exuded by a tree that grows in Arabia and is prized for its perfume. It was one of the gifts of the wise men to Jesus, as you can see back in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. Aloes is derived from the pulp of the leaves of a plant that belongs to the lily family. The spice is fragrant and bitter to the taste. Used with myrrh, it acts as a drying agent, and the fragrance would counteract the odor of decaying flesh. The quantity was 100 Roman pounds, or 75 pounds of our pounds, reveals both Nicodemus's wealth and his appreciation of Jesus. In God's sovereign providence, the men who were responsible for burying Jesus were men of means who provided the Lord Jesus with a burial fit for a king. Now let's go on to verse 40. It says in verse 40, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. These are Jewish religious leaders and they are following the burial customs of the Jews. Uh, though our Lord's body was not embalmed after the Egyptian fashion, obviously, uh, that would have involved removal of his entrails and brain and so forth, nevertheless, there, were some, uh, there was some uh, similarity to the embalming process here. The Jewish burial custom of the time would have resulted in our Lord's body being bound up in these linens. And why is that important? Well, because it demonstrates that Jesus was really dead. It also stands as a witness against uh, any skeptical theory that would claim that, well, Jesus wasn't really dead. The cool airs of the tomb just kind of revived him. And that's where the church got this silly idea that Jesus rose from the dead. This is the so-called swoon theory. It's sometimes atheists and skeptics like to bring up this uh, this theory to explain away the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But when you think about it, the swoon theory is ridiculous. Here was Jesus bound up with, with these heavy spices, uh, put into, uh, wrapped around with these, these linen cloths, placed in a, a rock-hewn tomb with, a, with probably a, a one-ton rock put at the mouth of the tomb. And Jesus is supposed to get revived by the cool airs of the tomb, and, and somehow break out of his linen cloths that he's bound up with and somehow roll away that stone and then present himself as the, the Lord of life. Such a theory is obviously ridiculous. So the way that our Lord was buried uh, bears testimony to the reality of his death, that he did indeed, he was really dead. He, he was not uh, merely in a comatose state. And then where was he laid? Verse 41 says, now in, a, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Matthew's gospel in Matthew 27 verse 60 indicates that the tomb belonged to Joseph himself. Friends, the fact that Joseph of Arimathea owned this new tomb, this rock-hewn tomb, also points to his wealth. Since these kinds of rock-hewn tomb, tombs could only be afforded by the wealthy. Now, what do we learn from all of this? Well, first of all, beloved, all of this is in fulfillment 
of Bible prophecy. The Bible predicted that the Messiah, the suffering servant, would indeed be with the rich in his death. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, the chapter predicting the Messiah to be the suffering servant of God, in that verse, Isaiah 53, verse 9, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. This clear fulfillment of Messianic Bible prophecy, dear ones, should help to strengthen our faith and confidence in the divine inspiration and the inerrant truth of God's holy word, the Bible. But another thing I would have you to consider, I've been talking about how our Lord was given a burial that is fit for a king. What was on the placard above our Lord's head on the cross? In the inscription that was placed above our Lord's head on the cross and which advertised the crime that he was alleged to have committed, the inscription read, according to chapter 19, verse 19 of John's Gospel, the inscription read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Our Lord was crucified under the false charge that he was aspiring to be a political king, a king in competition with Caesar. But while our Lord was crucified as a messianic pretender and a competitor to the throne of Caesar, in reality, Jesus was the true messianic king. He was and is the true spiritual and divine king of the Jews. Indeed, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. How fitting then that in God's sovereign plan and providence, our Lord should be given a burial fit for a king. Dear listener, let me ask you, is King Jesus your king and Messiah. He is, in fact, objectively speaking, but have you bowed to his kingship? Have you trusted in him as Lord and Savior? He received a burial fit for a king because he is the king, and he was raised victorious from the dead, and his kingship and lordship is now being proclaimed through the gospel to all the earth. Bow to his lordship. Trust him as your Savior and Lord. But next is I want us to consider from this passage a new tomb and an incorruptible hope. A new tomb and an incorruptible hope. Why is it that, that uh, John emphasizes the fact that Jesus was placed in a new tomb, as it says in verse 41? In this verse, we're told that our Lord was buried, quote, in a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Why is that an important detail? What is the significance of the fact that our Lord was buried in a new tomb? Why in God's sovereign plan and purpose for our salvation was it necessary for our Lord Jesus to be laid in a new tomb? Again, I think Dr. William Hendrickson states it well in his commentary when he writes the following. He says, although the entombment is an element in Christ's humiliation, nevertheless, it affords a foreglimpse of his exaltation. It is a new tomb. Decay has never entered it. The body of Jesus did not suffer corruption. God took care of that. The tomb belonged to a rich man. It was a tomb fit for a king. 
Here, everything points to exaltation. Beloved, the new tomb that was used by Jesus underscores our Lord's purity and his incorruption. In fact, the scriptures had predicted that the Messiah would not face corruption or decomposition in the tomb. Let's read what the Apostle Peter says about that in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Let's turn to Acts 2, and let me just read very briefly verses 25 to 31 of Acts chapter 2. As Peter is preaching the gospel to the gathering there on the day of Pentecost, that miraculous day when the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the church and and the, the disciples were enabled to speak in foreign tongues, proclaiming the glories of God in many different languages. We read these words beginning at verse 25. Peter says, For David, that's King David, says concerning him, concerning Jesus, and here he quotes from Psalm 16, which we sang earlier in the service, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that is a prophecy, a prediction of the resurrection, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He goes on to say, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Jesus himself did not experience corruption or decay in the grave. And why is that important? It's important because it points to our Lord's power to deliver us from final corruption and decay. Should our Lord tarry, each and every one of us will one day die and our bodies will decompose in the grave. But that's not the end of the story. If we are united to Christ, if Christ is our Lord and Savior, that which is corruptible will give way to incorruption. When Jesus returns at the end of this age in glory, he will raise us up in glory. He will raise us up incorruptible. And also, as Dr. Hendrickson had pointed out, our Lord's burial in a new tomb also pointed to his exaltation. It was a, a, a foreglimpse, as he puts it, to his resurrection, ascension, and exaltation at the Father's right hand. Friends, our Lord's estate of humiliation, which culminated in his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and in his continuing in a state of death until the third day, this estate of humiliation would be eclipsed by his estate of exaltation. And he would rise from the dead and ascend into heaven for his heavenly coronation. And in order to reign at the Father's right hand as King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who will one day consummate the promised kingdom. Since we believers are united to Christ, not only in his death and burial, but also in his resurrection, 
we can be assured that one day we will be raised incorruptible to live forever with our Savior in the new heavens and the new earth. And knowing these truths, brothers and sisters, we need not live our lives in fear of death and the grave because we serve the one who has conquered death and the grave and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We're going to recite this together this evening, uh, this evening at our worship service, but this, all of this causes me to think of that wonderful uh, catechism question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. If you want to turn there, it's on page 872, the back of your Psalter hymnal. The very first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The Bible-based answer to that question is this. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Dear listener, do you have this comfort? Do you belong to Jesus Christ as your faithful Savior? Receive and rest upon him today. But finally, beloved, I want us briefly to consider two lives that were transformed by our Lord's saving death. Two lives that were transformed by our Lord's saving death. And we focus in closing on verses 38 and 39. In this passage, as was already mentioned, we read of two prominent men, two men of wealth and means who were uh, aristocrats as well as leaders, religious leaders among the Jews. Now, of course, we're familiar with, with Nicodemus and his conversation with the Lord Jesus as recorded back in John chapter 3. That's the passage where Jesus told Nicodemus that if he would see or even enter the kingdom of God, he must be born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot even see the kingdom of God without the gift of the new birth. And, of course, all four gospel accounts men mention this man, Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph is variously described in the different gospel accounts. He is described in one, in one gospel account as a good and righteous man, as a man who had not consented to the plot to kill Jesus, as a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. So there were many positive qualities uh, that, by the grace of God, Joseph exhibited. However, friends, but as Nicodemus was apparently slow to understand the truth about the new birth, so we are led to understand that Joseph was slow to find the courage to openly identify as a follower of Jesus. For John tells us that he was a secret disciple. Look at, uh, look at verse, uh, trying to find the verse here. Yeah, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, 
You know, he was a Jewish religious leader. He was afraid, apparently. He, he uh, dealt with a sinful fear of being too open about his allegiance to Jesus, lest he lose his position and prominence in the Jewish community. But what is so interesting? I mean, think about these guys, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They were Jewish religious leaders here in the first century. And what was the common Jewish view in the first century about the Messiah? Well, the Jews were expecting a political Messiah. They weren't expecting a suffering Messiah, a Messiah that would be killed. They were expecting a Messiah who would conquer, who would conquer the dreaded Romans and set up an earthly kingdom ruled from Jerusalem and would set up a, a, and would sit on the throne as the new Davidic king in a political kingdom. You would think that with this, uh, with this mindset, with this understanding of the Messiah, that these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph, after Jesus was crucified and died, they, that these men might have said to themselves, oh, well, I guess, I guess he wasn't the one after all. He died. The Messiah is not supposed to die. But what's so amazing here is though we might expect Joseph and Nicodemus to come to the conclusion that Jesus was not the Messiah and to thus distance themselves from him and, and show no more loyalty towards him, after Jesus' death, they are both actually emboldened, emboldened in their allegiance to Jesus, emboldened in their courage. Think about the courage that Joseph had to exhibit in order to come before Pontius Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. In those days, uh, the friends of, of crucifixion victims could, could request the bodies of, of their friends or loved ones who were victims of crucifixion. However, the risk here is that, you know, Jesus was identified, falsely so, but identified as sort of an insurrectionist, as someone who was in competition with the Caesar. So by coming before Pilate, uh, Joseph puts himself in a vulnerable position. He puts himself in, in danger of being viewed as sympathetic towards, uh, uh, towards insurrection against Rome. And yet he did it anyways. And not only that, by coming before Pilate and requesting the body of Jesus, it's very likely that Joseph and his friend Nicodemus would have been cast out of or rejected by the Sanhedrin, perhaps even excommunicated from the synagogue. And to be excommunicated from the synagogue was to be cut off from the, your community, cut off from your family, cut off from your friends, socially ostracized. And yet here, after Jesus dies, these men are emboldened and empowered. And while John does not directly say it in our passage for today. I believe that we are to understand here that it was the saving death of Jesus that resulted in the effects of our Lord's saving death, which infused into these men a deepened loyalty to the Lord Jesus and courage to finally and openly confess their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this points to the power of Jesus' death. Jesus' death was a propitiation, a satisfaction, atoning for our sins. In his death, Jesus conquered sin and death and hell. In his death, Jesus also conquered the devil. And the effects of our Lord's death are such that those whom God has chosen for salvation will be emboldened by grace 
to identify with him and confess him. And so we see two lives transformed by our Lord's saving death. Now, Joseph and Nicodemus no doubt did not fully understand everything that was going on here, but we see that Christ had touched their lives and had changed their lives. Has your life been transformed and changed by the saving death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? May God in his mercy grant that we would be transformed by the saving work of Christ, our Lord and Savior, our only hope in life and in death. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again we thank you and praise you and bless you for all that Jesus did for us and that he was willing not only to go to the cross but also to go to the grave in our place, in our stead, that we might be raised to newness of life, raised incorruptible in union with him. Lord, we ask that you would help us to find comfort in these truths, and we ask that you would give us courage uh, that we need not live in fear of death, but instead may live with bold confidence and joy and hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Let's close our time of worship by rising, and we'll sing together number 479, Jesus, I am resting, resting, 479.